Babylon the Great uh, is called the city. It's also called a religious movement. But uh, she made all nations drink of the wine of her fornication, of her spiritual idolatry, and therefore God was going to judge the nations for their wickedness and idolatry. In contrast to the 144,000 of state spiritually true and faithful to Jesus throughout their time on the earth. And that's you know, not just an important lesson to learn for them during their ministry. It's an important lesson for us to learn for all of our ministries, that if we're going to really be used by God and hear him say one day, well done, good and faithful servants, then we have to keep ourselves holy and pure, both physically and doctrinally. I mean, we have to stay pure in both ways if we're going to be used by God, right? The godly 19th century Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, gave the following words of advice to an aspiring young minister. He said, and I quote, Do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart. How diligently the, cal- the uh, cavalry officer uh, keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust the chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of a holy God, end quote. So, you know, they are doing exactly what people in ministry ought to do at any time. Keeping themselves pure, you know, devoted to the Lord and staying away from sexual impurity and even marriage, which is not, you know, defiling in any way, but just wanting to stay focused on the Lord. Kind of like Jeremiah, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, Paul, after he got converted, we believe he was married. His wife probably left him because she was as zealous for Judaism as he was. But when he got saved, she couldn't deal with it. So she left him. But there have been examples throughout the history of the church of people that God has just laid on their hearts to remain single because of the work that he's called them to do. Well, it says in verse 4, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, it seems that because of their faithfulness to Jesus, during the most difficult period of suffering and evil in the history of mankind, that he gives them a special place of honor in the kingdom by making them his royal guard, you know? And they follow King Jesus around wherever he goes during the millennial kingdom. Can you imagine an entourage of 144,000 
royal guards, you know, not that he needs any protection, but, you know, a king has guards, right? And, uh, you know, gives gives us the feeling that we're doing something for the Lord when we serve him and things. I mean, he doesn't need any of us, but he lets us, you know, serve him and help in the work. And so these men have been blessed because of their faithfulness during a very horrific, difficult time on the earth. And the Lord makes them his royal guard in the kingdom age, and they follow him wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, the 144,000, I believe, were one to Christ through the ministry of the two witnesses. Remember now, the church is out of here, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. God never leaves himself without a witness, right? He never leaves the world in total darkness. He is always going to provide some channel of light, truth, and so on. So when the church is out of here, there's no, there's no believers left on the earth. Now, I'm not saying that some don't get saved pretty quickly. All the people, hopefully, that we've been bending their ear to accept the Lord, and they're saying to us, you know, well, we'll, we'll wait and see. Well, you know, when the rapture happens, I, I feel like a lot of these people are going to hurry up to get right with God. But right away, God's going to raise up these two witnesses. And we talked about these two back in chapter 11. So if you weren't here, get the CD, okay? Because we really went into detail. But God raises up these two witnesses to be his mouthpieces until more can be saved. And I believe that they are used by God right away to convert the 144,000 you know, Jews to Christ. And now these men take up the mantle of the ministry, right? But before that, I want to just show you this, is that they are called the first fruits, aren't they? Well, yeah, the, 140, the uh, two witnesses, uh, no doubt, uh, these were some of the very first Jews won to Christ during the tribulation period. We know that God's going to do a great work among the Jewish people during this time. Yes, two-thirds of all the Jews in the face of the earth are going to be killed by the Antichrist. Now, if there's 15 million Jews in the face of the earth, that's 10 million Jews. That's an awful lot of people. They still say to this day, never again. Never again will we let th six million of our people be killed like they were under Hitler. Well, I got news for him. Unfortunately, the Bible says that there's a day that's even more horrific coming for the Jewish people. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, great trouble, where they're going to be persecuted like they've never known in their history. And if you're a Jew, that's saying a lot. But Jesus said, you're going to undergo great tribulation such as, as has never been since the beginning of time, no, nor will ever be again. This is going to be the worst period of persecution the Jews have ever seen. And these 144,000 are going to be the first fruits of the two witnesses' ministry. Now, that's going to guarantee... See, first fruits comes from the feast of first fruits, right? Remember, we've talked about this many times. Uh, in the spring of the year, the Jews had three major feasts. They had Passover on the 14th of Nisan. They had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which started on the 15th of Nisan and ran for seven consecutive days. And during that seven-day period, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had a Sunday, and that Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was raised on the Feast of First Fruits. And Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, he's become our first fruits. What does that mean? Well, again, it goes back to the Feast of First Fruits, where it was an agricultural feast. 
And on the Feast of First Fruits, being in the spring, of course, they would have the first shoots of the barley harvest poking their way up out of the ground. Now, God always got the first fruits. God always got the first. That's what a tithe was. You gave God first from what he had given to you. And if you put God first by giving him uh, of your resources, the first of, you know, the first of your paycheck, the first of the crops of the field, of the animals that were born to you, you know, that kind of thing, God got the first. And the Feast of First Fruits signified that. They would cut down the first sheaves of the barley harvest, bring it to the temple, give it to the priest. He would go in before the Lord and wave these sheaves, giving them to God as the first fruits. And because the people honored God with the first fruit, God would then give to them a great harvest. Jesus Christ was the first fruit of those who are raised from the dead, never to die again. And Paul says, because Christ has risen, never to die again, it guarantees that every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we're going to be raised someday. There's going to be a great harvest, all right? Uh, think of the rapture. The rapture is a great harvest of souls. Of course, those of us who are alive and remain on the earth, we're not going to taste death at all. But all those saints that have died from Pentecost to the rapture, the church age, they're going to be resurrected. Great harvest. Because the first fruits, Christ, guarantees that the rest of us who are his followers will be resurrected someday too. Well, the same with these 144,000 Jews. They represent the first fruits of a great harvest for the nation of Israel. And we'll talk about that a little more later. I just want you to realize, though, that God is not through with the nation of Israel. If you weren't here for our study in Romans, I believe chapter 11, we spent a whole evening talking about the fact that some, many in the church, not some, many, have said that God's done with Israel. It's over with. The church has replaced Israel, replacement theology. The Jews killed their Messiah. That was it. They're done. Any talk of, of any future plan of God for the nation of Israel is, is ridiculous. They don't belong in that land. Many, many of these Christians who believe in this replacement theology signed a document saying that they would not, nor would their churches, do any business with any company that supports Israel. Because they're so convinced Israel blew it, they crucified their own Messiah, and now they are just, they've been cut out of the loop. God does, has nothing to do with them anymore. That's ridiculous. And we talked about why that was ridiculous during that uh, teaching. But God is definitely not through with the nation of Israel. In fact, in Romans 11, Paul said that there's com coming a point when Jesus is going to return, and then all Israel is going to be saved. And we'll see that as we go. So here we see the fruit of these, uh, the, the 144,000 were first fruits themselves, but then they go on to bring in a cr tremendous harvest, don't they? Remember in chapter 7, we talked about how that before God, uh, the Lord Jesus broke the seventh seal. God sealed 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes on their forehead. In chapter 7, around verses 8 or 9, or excuse me, around verses five, six, somewhere there. And then we come to verse nine, right after they're sealed and they start their ministry, it says, and I looked, John said, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Who are these people? Well, that's a good question because in verse 14, one of the angels says to, or may have been an elder, says to John, who are these? who have these, you know, white robes and 
palm branches. And John said, well, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. They're, they're believers. And I believe that they're the, they're the fruit of the 144,000 Jewish evangelist ministry. So they are quite um, effective during this time. Well, verse 5. And in their mouth, in the mouth of these 144,000, was no deceit. You could translate that. In their mouth was no, found no lie. Which means they did not participate in the big lie of the beast, the Antichrist, when he went around performing miracles to deceive people, what Paul calls lying signs and wonders. And he was preaching this religion, okay, his own special brand of religion where he's God. But he did miracles to back it up, and the whole world is enamored, is going to be enamored with this guy, right? Well, well, the whole world is falling into this deception. Because you see, a miracle is pretty powerful, right? I mean, people tend to, to believe that if somebody could do a miracle, they must be operating in the power of God. And therefore, what they say must be true. Not realizing the Bible says that Satan has the power to do miracles also. And he can empower his false prophets and people like the Antichrist with this power to perform real-life miracles that are designed to deceive people to believe whatever this, the lie is that this false prophet, or in this case, the Antichrist, is given to people. But the uh, 144,000 stayed pure. They didn't fall for this deception. There was no lie found in their mouth. In other words, they kept their mouth. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? He said the spiritual deception would be so rampant during this period of time that if possible, even the elect would be deceived. But God is going to supernaturally keep his people, especially the 144,000, free from this deception. He's going to give them wisdom. He's going to give them discernment to know what is of God and what is not of God. And so these are going to stay pure. They're going to not propagate Satan's lies, but they're going to speak God's truth. They're going to be like those of whom Zephaniah wrote about in Zephaniah 3.13. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. And again, this is in great contrast to the world in general, who, you know, we, we just talked about how that the whole world is going to be pretty much, of course, not the whole world. People are going to be getting saved. But when compared with the rest of the world, it's going to be a small percentage. But the world is going to be so consumed with the Antichrist's false miracles and his slick words, you know, that are just lies. I mean, if you don't think people are gullible, look at how they fall for a slick tongue orator every time. Now, I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> Because you know what? There are many examples. People are so enamored with looks and oration. If a person looks good and can speak really well, it's almost like they glaze over and they just receive anything. There's no judging. There's no discerning. Um, it's just amazing. And the Antichrist is going to be the ultimate example of this very thing. Of course, he'll be backing it up with supernatural power. There's a lot of people who are gullible right now for people that don't have supernatural power. Can you imagine if you coupled somebody that's good-looking, a good, uh, powerful, charismatic speaker with supernatural abilities? Man, if you don't know the truth, you're going to follow a guy like that. 
That's why Jesus said, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. But I have told you in advance. It's the word of God that keeps us on the right path. That we not look at, you know, all, all the miracles and things. We keep our eyes focused on the Lord and his word. And these men will do that very thing. They're going to faithfully and accurately proclaim the word of God without wavering during this period. Now, verse 5, for they are without fault before the throne of God, it says. Now, of course, that does not mean that they were without sin. No, none of us are without sin. But it means that they were without fault. They were blameless. How can a sinner be blameless? By accepting Christ and clothing yourself in the righteousness of Christ, which comes through faith. That's how all of us are blameless. We're not sinless. We know that. In fact, the Bible says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you. But the Bible also said in Jude chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter, Jude 1, 24 and 5, or verse 24, I should say, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. How can God keep us faultless? I mean, we're sinners, okay, but we're saved by the blood of Christ. Our, our sins are washed clean. But I, I know that I still sin. I like to think I sin a lot less than I used to, but I still sin. I still blow it. So how can God continue to keep me faultless until the day he presents me to himself? Because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you, aren't you glad? I mean, aren't you just tickled to no end that God didn't say, you know, I'm going to wash you of all your sins up until the day you receive my son. Now the rest is up to you. Can you imagine what a horrible life that would be? You'd never get any rest. You'd never be at peace. You'd always be worried to death about how you're acting and how you're living and so on. And, and not that you shouldn't care how you live, of course. It's just that perfect love casts out fear. When I know that God saved me, and he saved me to the uttermost, he saved me all the way, that all my sins were nailed to Calvary's cross and were taken out of the way when I put my faith in Christ, and that God continues, the blood of Christ just continues to work every time I sin. It continues to wash me clean. And so I can have perpetual fellowship with the Lord. I mean, I never have to worry about coming into condemnation because it's already it's a done deal. Jesus has taken away all our sins as believers. Well, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. Now, there are many who interpret this angel, which simply means a messenger, uh, to mean a satellite, you know, in outer space, which is being used during this time to broadcast the gospel via television and radio. There's a lot of people, and back in the 80s, there was a lot of talk like this, you know. Oh, did you hear the latest? They just launched a new satellite into space. It's called the angel. Oh, that's not a revelation, see? And you know, there's a lot of stuff back then, you know, people were, you know, getting off into some weird stuff, all right? Look, we have satellites in space right now that are used to broadcast the gospel to every area of the world through the television and radio. I mean, 
that's nothing new. This seems like it's going to be something new, something different, something that's going to kind of get the attention of the world, which is so jaded with sin by this time. God has got to do things that are a little out of the... The Antichrist is working miracles all over the place. God wants to do some dramatic things to show people that there is, you know, there is another message that they, they need to listen to. Not the Antichrist thing, but God is a message for this world as well. So I, I don't see this as being some kind of a piece of technology like a satellite. I, I just, and, and let me also say this, I have a hard time believing that during the tribulation period, the one world government controlled by Antichrist is not going to severely limit speech and prohibit the, the uh, broadcasting of any religious message that, that uh, conflicts with the religion of the Antichrist. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, when the Antichrist finally gets a hold of the world, well, it says here in Revelation 13, verse 6, when he finally comes into power and shows his true colors, when he's got a firm grip on the entire world, politically and spiritually, and now he starts to show his true colors. Revelation 13, verse 6, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. This is not a man that's going to allow the broadcasting of the true gospel over the airwaves. Also, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, that he is going to oppose himself and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. He's going to sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So when he first comes into power... He's going to be kind of towering of religion. He's going to need religion to thrust him into power even more. Once he gets a hold of the world totally, then he outlaws all religions but his own, where he is God. But you know what? As I've said, I think that this angel is not a satellite. I think it's a literal angel that has been sent by God to preach the gospel to the inhabitants of this world before God unleashes his final and greatest judgments on the earth so that no one can say, I never heard the gospel. Nobody can say, I never heard the gospel. God's going to make sure that everybody is going to hear it. This angel is going to be multilingual. He's going to be able to preach the gospel and everybody on the face of the earth is going to hear it in their own language. And it's going to be a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14. About this time, he said, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. And so this angel appears, flying in the heavens. The Greek means the mid-heaven, or it actually is a, a refers to the point in the sky where the sun reaches its meridian, its apex, or its high point at noon. In other words, this angel is going to be flying through the sky, like a, kind of like a high noon kind of a thing, and nobody is going to miss this angel. I mean, I can't even, I'm trying to imagine this as I'm doing this study today. What is this going to look like? I mean, and what are people going to say? Oh, look at that. You know, I mean, are they going to be shocked? Are they going to be... What, what, how are they going to respond to this? Well, we know a lot of them don't respond at all. But at least God is giving them a chance. Of course, the Antichrist and the devil is not going to be able to do anything about it. They've shut down all freedom of speech. They've closed down the gospel to the airwaves, and Bibles are not being sold anymore, I'm convinced, and 
all Bible tracts burned and so on, yet they cannot close down this avenue of truth because God won't allow it. Angels are indestructible. So this angel is going to declare the truth of God, and the devil and his antichrist can't do anything about it. Now, verse 6 says that this angel, flying through the midst of heaven, proclaimed or having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. And of course, what's that a reference to? Unbelievers, right? This angel is going to proclaim to them, preach to them the everlasting gospel to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. The gospel is like a beautiful multifaceted diamond. Have you ever looked at a diamond? I mean, you, you hold it up and it's got these beautiful facets and as you turn it, you just see the, the, the beauty of this thing from different angles, right? And it communicates a little something different each time with regard to beauty. The gospel is like that. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.